Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and you're listening to Episode 8 of Highly Relevant with Jack Rico. This is the podcast where I interview the people and discuss the moments that are shaping our American and Latino pop culture. On this episode, I welcome one of the quintessential New York Latino character actors in Hollywood, David Sayas. We converse about his new movie, The Lennon Report, his lack of desire to be the star in his own movies, and which stories he thinks Latinos should be writing about for Hollywood. Also, the New York Film Festival begins this weekend, and I spoke to Kent Jones, the director of the festival himself, to share his must-see movies, what we can expect from Pedro Almodovar's new film, Julieta, and why there's such an absence of U.S.-born Hispanic directors in cinema today. An advertising week has hit New York City, and I decided to speak with one of the great minds in multicultural marketing, Linda Ong, the CEO and founder of Truthco, about the future of Hispanic television. What language will it be in? What kind of programming will be on it? That and a recap of all the best pop culture stories that you might have missed this week. You've seen my first guests in dozens of TV shows such as Dexter, HBO's Oz, and on the big screen in films such as the remake of Annie and The Expendables. Puerto Rican David Sayas is an actor known for his professionalism and intense commitment to his roles. He now co-stars in the ensemble film The Lennon Report, seen through the eyes of those who lived the assassination of John Lennon. David joins me now on the podcast. Hey, Jack, how you doing, man? David, how are you, man? I'm good, brother. How are you? Let's talk a little bit about the Lennon Report. It's very interesting. Like, the perspective on this John Lennon assassination reminds me about a movie that I saw recently also about the JFK assassination, because it's done from different angles, I believe. Tell me a little bit about what the film is and your involvement in the film with your character. It is similar, but here's the difference. Uh, in, in that movie, which I think is called Parkland, right? It's the one you're talking about. That's the one. Right, which I, lo- which I love that film. You know, the difference with this is this is the experience of blue-collar workers, doctors in the Roosevelt Hospital, that didn't know who was coming in, that didn't know what, the, what, you know, what, what they were expecting, and how that materialized as, you know, John Lennon came in uh, when he was shot, and the transition of the sensationalism of it when they find out who he was and the reaction of everybody and how they had to handle these blue-collar workers, you know, these nurses, these doctors, these security people, uh, you know, how they handled this event 
as it unfolded. Now, you play a cop, correct, or a detective? I play the head of security of Roosevelt Hospital. And what role did he have in real life? And what did you bring to the role? Well, here's the thing. For the sake of the film, I, I believe that they took a variety number of security people and they made it into this one character. Uh, and and okay. that's what he's represent. That's, that's what this character is representing. Now, let me ask you something, David. Where were you? I was 18. Okay. I was 18. I was in New York City. I lived in the Bronx. You know, you got to understand that in 1980, we have no internet. We have no cell phone. You know, we have no beepers. That's right. You know, it was simply what you saw, what you read in the newspaper, what you saw in, like, if you're in Times Square, what you see up in the, in the, in the screen, or what you saw on Channel 7 Eyewitness News with Roger Grimsley and Bill Butel, the news wasn't as immediate as it would be today. So when that, that news consumed all of the newscasts on, on TV, and in the newspaper the next day, in, in some weird way, it becomes even more significant. Right. It becomes even a bigger deal in 1980 because it kind of just saturates every media outlet. And at that time, there weren't that many as there are today. John Lennon, even though we all knew who John Lennon was, that really wasn't the music I grew up to, but it was still a significant, a significant... And what it did was... It made me listen to a lot of John Lennon music. Right? That. that happened to me, too. So, I started yeah. listening to the Beatles as a whole. Yeah. I kind of wanted to understand why the impact reverberated worldwide. And I'm like, am I missing something? Well, what I did know at 18 at that time was that John Lennon was a um, very, uh, he was an outspoken activist. I was more familiar with John Lennon after the Beatles broke up. Uh, changing gears quickly, you know, you're like the ultimate character actor. I was wondering if you've ever wanted to become a lead actor. Uh, I spoke to Michael Pena about this years ago because I think Michael Pena, John Ortiz, I spoke to this uh, about this too, where they've solidified their credibility, their credentials in Hollywood, in film and television as a character actor. Has that ever crept into your head and have you gone about it? Uh, no. To me, uh, I, it was very simple to me. Try to act any way, anyhow, any place you can. <laughs> you know? And so any opportunity to act, to me, was, was a welcome. It's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to create a character. It, it really doesn't matter to me if it's a lead or it's supporting. I, it really doesn't. It never has, and it probably never will. You have an impressive resume, David. I mean, I've looked everything from top to bottom. You. You've been on some big shows, man, big movies as well. When did it hit you that this was your new normal? The way I look at it is I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an actor who uh, hopefully has a good reputation, has a good work ethic, is a great collaborator, and loves what he does. I'm excited and surprised with every job I get. And I really do my research and and take it very seriously and, and do the best work I can. I always wanted to be an actor since I was, since I saw Dog Day Afternoon when I was like 12 years old. I was like, I don't know what I want to do, whether it's act, but I know I want to be a part of how this movie is making me feel. It wasn't until like I was 29, 30 years old that I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try doing this. And I know that if I'm going to succeed in this, if there's going to be any success, I'm going to have to commit to it. And, and so I went to uh, school and uh, acting school. I joined Labyrinth Theater Company with John Ortiz and, and uh, just tried to, you know, with humility and with passion and what I learned in life in my early years and 
just try to do the best I can. When you look at television and film, a lot of people are saying that we're now going through the golden age of television. But you as an actor who who traverses between both mediums seamlessly, do you buy into that, that TV right now is better than film? I think we are in the golden age of television. I think um, short-term television particularly, you know, network shows, shows and on Showtime, HBO, Hulu, FX, you know, those, those, uh, some of the best writing is happening in that medium. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would, uh, I would agree that, you know, and, and of course, independent film will always be there and we're always good films are always going to be around, you know, but we are in the golden age of television. Television provides some of the best roles, I think, for an actor. I wanted to get your thoughts on, from the moment you started into this business where there was a lack of Hispanic talent in directing, in screenwriting, in musical composition, cinematography, acting, when you saw Alfonso Cuaron, Alejandro González Iñárritu win Best Directors and Best Pictures, what was going on through your head? Were you going, holy sweat, my, my, my culture, my community, we've, we've made it, or is it normal to you? It's great. There's more opportunity. I think there's a long way to go. It's a long way to go in creating our stories, you know, my culture, trying to create that. And, and you do that by having directors, writers, producers that are going to promote uh, telling these stories from different cultures, you know, not only, not only Latino, but, you know, Asian-American, African-American. You know, we are, we're in a country that's, uh, you know, our art should represent our culture. Our art should represent our society. What kind of stories do you think the Hispanic Hispanic filmmakers, Hispanic screenwriters, Hispanic talent should be talking about? Because I had this conversation recently with Anthony Mendez, the uh, narrator for Jane the Virgin, and we were talking about Latino stories, how it's always about immigration, it's always about crossing the border, it's always about something that reflects us in not necessarily the right light. What kind of stories do you want to hear from our community? I love um, family stories, stories that tell, you know, um, a tale about the struggles within a family, stories about family, stories about choices, stories about dealing with the environment that they're in, um, stories about them adjusting to new places that they're, they're in, you know, stories about the strength, the courage that they, they demonstrate. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. I see, I see it every day. I remember seeing it as a police officer every day. Family is so important. And so any story like that, like, you know, this wonderful program on, that I've been watching I just, two weeks called This Is Us. Oh, the one on NBC. I've been hearing and great reviews on it. What, what, yeah, what a beautiful story. And that story is about family. The story is about the struggles within the family. You know, there's... there's um, that is, it's interesting to me. And these are the kind of stories that I would love to see, you know, in, uh, in, in every aspect of, of show business, in every aspect of television, of film. I always find that interesting. Before I let you go, I wanted to do a quick speed round with you. Uh, just throw a couple of questions at you and kind of get to know you a little bit ber- better personally. Sure. Let's start. Favorite late night show? Steve. Steve Gobert. App that you can't live without? I would say uh, sports like ESPN and also CNN maybe. You know, just some news um, news programs, but I'm not a really, I'm not big, I'm not a big app person. Funniest person you've ever met? Funniest person I've ever met. 
Um, I would say my 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 dad was the funniest person I've ever known. A movie that changed your life. Dog Day Afternoon. I thought that was fascinating. An album you'd recommend to everyone. Wow. I would I would say every Nina Simone album. Nice. But you know, I got I got I joined the Air Force, and I remember there was this um, young girl from North Carolina who was also in the Air Force with me. And she used to listen to Nina Simone all the time. And I'm like, who is that? And she says, Nina Simone. And I, then I started listening to it and I was like fascinated. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate uh, your time, man. Thank you so much, brother. Catch David Zayas on the big screen in The Lennon Report, premiering October 7th in a limited theatrical release. It's time for Jacked In, where we plug ourselves in to recap the most highly relevant bicultural pop culture news that happened this week. Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. There's a Lion King live-action remake coming soon. Remember the Hot Wheels toys? Well, that's going to become a movie directed by Justin Lin. DC Comics announced that Wonder Woman is gay, so now the question is, will she be gay in the movie? And Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu plans to do an experimental short virtual reality film centered on a group of immigrants. Good luck. Changing over to the small screen, CBS's Sunday Morning makes it official and hires Jane Pauley to replace Charles Osgood. Saturday Night Live casts Alec Baldwin as its new Donald Trump and Lin-Manuel Miranda will be hosting SNL on October 8th. FX cancels Guillermo del Toro's The Strain, BET's six-hour, three-night event of the new edition story, sets its premiere date for January 24th to the 26th of 2017. And Will and Grace reunited for an election web episode, but still no word on whether that comeback will be permanent. Switching to music... It's official. Lady Gaga will be headlining the 2017 Super Bowl halftime show. Colombian singer Fonseca wrote and recorded a verse in Spanish for a new version of Ringo Starr's peace anthem, Now the Time Has Come. Jennifer Lopez will judge a new NBC dance competition series. One Direction's Niall Horan surprises with his first solo single called This Town. And Univision is in search for the next female regional Mexican star in a new music competition called La Reina de la Canción, premiering 2017. The biggest news to come out of the tech and social media industries is that Disney is looking to buy Twitter for what could be $20 billion. Spotify starts streaming into Japan. Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr just launched their own voter registration day campaign. And Snapchat is now called Snap Inc. And it launched a pair of techie sunglasses called Spectacles that would let users change how they film and post snap clips. The cost will be 130 bucks, and it'll be out in time for the holidays. And we'll finish off with Broadway. Hamilton's Leslie Odom Jr.'s new holiday album, Simply Christmas, will be available in November. Lin-Manuel Miranda says the In the Heights movie will begin shooting this spring and he won't be playing Uznavi. And Hamilton Chicago began previews this week and will have its official opening October 19th. Are you going? Oh, and happy birthday shout-outs to Olivia Newton-John, who turns 68, and Gwyneth Paltrow, who turns 44. The 54th edition of the New York Film Festival is already underway here in New York City. I thought I should have a chat with Kent Jones, the director of the festival, to gather his views on what film gems we should expect this year in a discussion on Almodovar and the non-existence of the U.S. Hispanic director. You are the director of the New York Film Festival. I'd like to begin with this interview with a basic question. 
Why are film festivals so important to our communities and our cities, in your opinion? Well, because at this point in film history, it's harder and harder for movies that are not franchises or superhero movies or sequels to be seen. And it's harder and harder for smaller distribution companies to operate. Uh, it's certainly easier to get a film seen on smaller screens um, at home, but that's different. And then you're getting away from a word that you just used, which is communities. So that's why there are more and more film festivals um, in the world, because they actually provide forum for people to see a lot of movies that ordinarily would pass them by or that would be available to them, but they might not know that they're available to them because, you know, they have no way of, of, of knowing that they're there on Netflix or Hulu or, you know, one of the many other platforms that they can have access to at home. So that's why film festivals are important. You selected Ava DuVernay's 13th as the opening night film, 20th uh-huh. Century Women with Annette Benning. It's one of its stars as your centerpiece film and The Lost City of Z as your closing night film. What do you yeah. think makes these particular films so special for you to select them in those categories? Well, the simple answer is that they're all great, but that's not the answer that you're looking for. <laughs> 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 um but they are. I mean, you know, and the, the thing that's so, you know, that, that I really love is that they're all so different. They're very, very different kinds of movies. The 13th, or as it's, as it's actually called, 13th, there's no duh, is the first time we've ever opened to the documentary. It's a documentary that meets history head on and is dealing with something that is in the shadows of what people talk about a lot. That's mass incarceration and the development of the prison industry. One out of four human beings with their hands on bars, shackled, in the world, are locked up here in the land of the free. Uh, 20th Century Woman is a very different kind of movie. It's a very, very personal movie about Mike Mill, the director's, you know, uh, adolescence. And I mean, it all, it, 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 for me, I found it extremely moving. Stop. What? Thinking that you know everything that's going on. No, I don't. I just think that... You know, having your heart broken is a tremendous way to learn about the world. Annette Benning has always been a great actress, and this she's just absolutely amazing. And then finally, The Lost City of Z. It's a James Gray film, and he hasn't done many films in his career, but the few that he has done, I've just fallen in love with. Perhaps my favorite mm. is Two Lovers with Joaquin Phoenix and Gwyneth Paltrow. Mm. I felt like it had a... It, it, I connected with it in a in a way that I that I rarely connect with films. What can we expect from Lost City of Z as your closing night selection? James's movies are among the glories of American cinema, and he's a guy who knows. Obviously, when you watch his movies, you know you can see he's a guy who knows his film history, and his films are connected with the history of film, in particular American film, in a very very interesting way because he makes melodramas that are very much in the vein of, you know, movies from an earlier era, but then he builds from that and builds his own very intense, like intensely personal. So in this one, for the very first time, he's making a movie, not New York. It's not only not New York, but it's not contemporary. It's literally a kind of movie that people don't make anymore in terms of craftsmanship and the scale of it. We may find a city bedecked with gold. It may well write a whole new chapter in human history. Um, before I let you go, Ken, I noticed there are three Hispanic films as part of your slate. Hermia yeah. and Elena from Matias Piñeiro, Julieta yeah. from Pedro Almodóvar, and Neruda. Yeah. 
which I'm really yeah. looking forward to from Pablo Larraín and Gael García Bernal. Yeah. Actually, we just announced yesterday we're doing a special screening of another movie by Pablo Larraín, which is called Jackie. It's about Jackie Kennedy. Oh, that's right. That's the one with Natalie Portman. Yeah. That's right. We're doing a Cuban film, a Cuban documentary by Olatz Carmendia called Patria Muerte. So, yeah, we actually have a lot of them. You know, it's interesting because every time you, you, you mention a lot of these films, most of these films mm -hmm. are from Argentina, Mexico, mm -hmm. there's Cuba. But what you mm -hmm. don't hear is the U.S.-born Hispanic director in cinema today. Why do you think there's such an absence of them? You know, one could, it's, it's, it's the same question when it comes to why are there so few women making films and why are there so few African-American filmmakers? You know, the answer we can all, we can all provide, we all know the answer. The answer is that, you know, the majority of jobs, not just film director, but in a lot of professions have been filled by, you know, white men. This year, there are many more women filmmakers than there have been in the past. Now, I think we're in a position in the country where the opportunities are becoming more numerous. Pedro Almodóvar has Julieta yeah. out this year. You're presenting it. The last two films he's done were hiccups. They weren't received with the same level of love as his previous yeah. films from the past. Yeah. Do you think Julieta puts him back on track? Well, this is a different kind of movie. I mean, you know, this is a passion project of his that he's been wanting to do for a long time. He uh, had wanted to do it as an American movie with Meryl Streep for, for years because, you know, it's actually based on stories by Alice Munro. I don't know why that fell apart, but it did. And so he decided that he was going to transpose it to a Spanish setting. And yeah, it's a really impassioned piece of work. I mean, you know, it's, 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 we're proud to be showing it. Kent, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your insight. And I'm sure that uh, you've already got me. I mean, I was already intrigued by your programming slate this year. But now talking to you, I'm, I'm really excited to see these other films that you've also mentioned. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. The New York Film Festival runs straight through October 16th at New York's Lincoln Center. If you're interested in going to the movies, here's what's in theaters. Jake, right on time. Miss Peregrine, delighted to meet you. My grandpa told me about this. This is a home for peculiar children. <laughs> mayday, Mayday, this is Deepwater Horizon. Come on, we gotta go! My husband, Mike Williams, is on the Deepwater Horizon. Everybody calm down. What's wrong? Not now, baby. My wife's in Felicia. And my daughter's Sydney. And I will see them again. Do you understand me? What if we lose? Suddenly it becomes acceptable to say the Holocaust didn't happen? The word denier is particularly evil. There are no holes in that roof. Therefore, there never were any gas chambers. No holes, no Holocaust. He wanted a catchy phrase. He's got it. Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? Not all opinions are equal. But I'm not a racist. I've been defending my right to stand up against someone who wants to pervert the truth. If it's TV you want to see and binge on, here's what I recommend. I was put in some tank like an exotic fish. Came out with abilities. Netflix premieres all 13 episodes of Marvel's second African-American hero, Luke Cage. The whole neighborhood is yapping about how two goons got the beat down last night. I heard it was four guys. <laughs> 
Saturday Night Live begins a new season with host Margot Robbie and The Weeknd performing. It'll also be the debut of Melissa Villaseñor, the first SNL Latina cast member, racist tweets and all. And Nate Parker will be appearing on CBS's 60 Minutes on Sunday to speak with Anderson Cooper on his film Birth of a Nation and its rape allegations. Take a listen. Do you feel guilty about anything that happened that night? I don't feel guilty. Do you feel you did something morally wrong? As a Christian man, just being in that situation, yeah, sure. I used to work in Spanish language television for almost a decade, and now most of the work I do is in English. I'm what you call an example of the bilingual story which so many Hispanic Americans in this country reflect. They speak, listen, watch, read, write, and communicate in two languages. Having worked in media bilingually, I often wonder, what is the future of Spanish in media? Is Spanish the future of content in America, or a language left for an older generation like my grandparents? To answer these questions, I welcome Linda Ong to the show. She is the CEO and founder of TruthCo, an omnicultural branding and insights firm, and has been at the center of some of the most high-profile brand transformations in media, including the brand portfolio of Univision. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jack. Glad to be here. Uh, before we begin, I wanted to ask you this. How does your cultural background prepare you to become an Hispanic expert? Well, that's a great story that goes really way back to about, you know, 50 years ago when I was a little kid growing up. And I grew up in a household that was of Chinese descent. Um, my parents were born in Indonesia. They went to Dutch schools because Indonesia was a Dutch colony at the time. They went to university in Europe. They moved to the States. They lived in California. I was born in New York. When I was eight years old, I moved to Texas. I think I had to deal with a lot of cultures growing up. And for me, I was always an outsider. And so for me, growing up in Texas, aside from the fact that my best friend for 12 years was a Cubana, um, <laughs> you know, I think that the Hispanic affinity for me was really just an affinity for people who were not of the mainstream. And I find that I work with, oddly enough, I worked with African-Americans, worked with Hispanics, never worked with uh, solely on an Asian brand. But I think I always feel that I understand the perspective of not being you know, a, a white, uh, you know, centuries-old family, um, and and coming at things from more of a, uh, a perspective of somebody who's trying to understand what it means to fit in, what cultural codes and cues allow someone to be quote unquote cool or an insider, and so studying all those things and just translating them to different audiences and different kinds of cultures, um, you know, just came natural to me. The Hispanic market, for me, has always been this incredible immigrant story. You know, it's almost like the yeah. outlier immigrant story. It's less about assimilation, more about cultural infiltration. Uh, yeah. We see Latino cultural imprints on everything today. Food, music, yeah. dance, fashion, entertainment. And now, what we really are seeing it is in TV and film. A great example is yeah. Queen of the South, season two on USA. And El mm -hmm. Señor de los Cielos on Telemundo. It's number one with millennials, regardless of language. How do you explain this? What kind of Hispanic is dictating the dominance right now? Is it the Spanish dominance or is it the English dominant Latinos? That's a great question. From our perspective, we've been studying uh, the Hispanic market in the U.S. since 2008. And we really see it as sort of a, 2008 as being the perfect storm 
of a couple of different factors. One, you had, of course, the rapid growth of Hispanics in the U.S., fueled very much by a bicultural second and third generation. Um, you know, it's interesting when I talk to people who are not in the Hispanic space about the Hispanic space, I say all the growth that's projected, you know, by 2050, 40% of the U.S. is going to be Hispanic is not coming from immigrants. It's coming from people having babies. And I think people don't understand that so much of the growth is organic in the U.S. Uh, and that's a really exciting time because you have people that don't really have a strong association other than emotional with other countries, and yet they have a very, very fierce and, and embedded sense of tradition and, and heritage. You couple that with the economic collapse. And then the third component in this, right. for, in this perfect storm would be um, the rise of millennials, as you said, just as a, a population, a generation that has been raised on social justice values like fairness. I mean, they literally all got trophies, so they expect everyone's going to be treated equally. Much more of a curiosity and openness to other cultures. Um, and you also have, you know, millennials are the smartest, most intelligent, most educated generation on earth. And then lastly, of course, in the perfect storm, the, the, the fuel, the accelerant to all of this was um, social and digital. And, you know, we know that every study shows that Latinos over-index on, on social and digital, especially mobile platforms. To me, it's just a great confluence of um, a lot of wonderful factors coming together. And, you know, what Latino tastes are cool now. Latino tastes are driving pop culture and food, you know, Mexican and Latino food is becoming the new, um, the new uh, hot cuisine. And it's, it just goes to show that um, people are really, really open to good ideas when they're presented in a way that is good for everybody. I'm doing the math here, and mm -hmm. it's very clear that there is a very clear distinction between Spanish language dominance and the new English language dominant Hispanics that I just feel like in the last two years came out of nowhere. What ultimately is going to be the engine that pushes Hispanic growth in this country? Well, you know, it's interesting because I work with so many clients who are not familiar with the Hispanic space. And the first thing they ask me is about language. And language used to be a great definer and divider. And it's no language is, um, you know, language is a, a, just another communication tool, but it's not a, a hard line, especially when it comes to biculturals. And I think what you see in the U.S. is really interesting because for so many decades, it's been dominated by Mexican, you know, actual Mexican product that was brought in by, by Univision and Televisa and mostly on Univision. And that really because of the population, you know, veering so heavily towards Mexican-Americans, I believe it's something like 75% of the U.S. Hispanic population is Mexican, that, you know, it became a very monolithic view of Spanish language television. And you had Televisa, I'm sorry, Telemundo, who was showing things like, you know, Colombian, Venezuelan, Argentinian soap operas. And, you know, in the beginning, that seemed like an also ran, but now it's just become more and more diverse. And I think what's happening in Hispanic language television or Spanish language television is, is the same that's happening in English language television, which is there's an explosion, a fire hose of choices. And nobody wants to be defined by 
one category or one genre. Consumers don't watch things in genres, just like they don't watch things in language. They just watch content. And content can be any mix of anything that, that people um, find interesting. I mean, you take a show like Jane the Virgin on the CW, which does a really good job of mixing English and, and Spanish language um, tropes and comments and codes, but they don't do it in a way that's anything but just organic to the story and the characters. And I think that, you know, we see more and more shows. I spent the entire weekend just binge viewing Narcos. <laughs> right. I, think, I 90, think everyone has. 90 per- yeah, and like 90% of that shows in subtitles. Now, here's another thing that it used to be, and I grew up in traditional television, used to be growing up, I was told Americans will never read subtitles. That was just told we were not a literate nation. But my team has observed over the last eight years an explosion, not only in the use of subtitles, but the ability for everyday viewers to just be very you know, nonchalant about watching them, mostly because of reality television, where you had English to English subtitles. Because in unscripted television, you had people who were drunk or they were, you know, speaking in some kind of jargon or accent that you couldn't understand, or they were going to the bathroom and they were behind closed doors and it was fuzzy. But you cannot watch a reality TV show without subtitles now. I think, again, all these markers that used to divide us are just going to become texture. And something like Univision, you know, with their very aggressive purchase on the digital end, of going into English language, I think what they're doing is just mirroring the reality of their audience. It's smart. Netflix, uh, they keep on offering Hispanic, bicultural, bilingual, Spanish programming from Narcos to El Gran Hotel to Velvet. Clearly, they are getting Hispanics and multiculturals. What other company approaches even to the same level of ideas and forward thinking as they are right now? Telemundo is doing with NBC Universo, which is owned by Comcast, and it's essentially their cable uh, answer to Telemundo and and a, a way to go up against Galavision. You know, they're doing some really smart things in that they're bringing high quality content like The Walking Dead and dubbing it in Spanish, but not doing sort of a half-assed job the way a lot of uh, you know Spanish language uh, dubbing is done, but doing really a a production, uh, putting a production effort and production value into the dubbing that is um, appropriate for a high-quality peak television show like The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. And I think just understanding there's an opportunity for uh, Spanish-dominant Spanish viewers to appreciate high-quality television. I mean, high-quality Spanish-language television has not existed in the U.S. to date before things like Narcos. And Narcos season two is a co-production with Univision. But increasingly, the bulk of Hispanic television in the U.S. is going to, you know, again, because it's just so much choice, is going to be more demanding, more discerning, just as it is um, in mainstream general market television. It's five, 10 years from now. What is the future of our Hispanic language or our Hispanic media uh, landscape. You know, for so long, the only representation that was really anything anybody paid attention to of African American life was what we call the ratchet shows on, you know, like VH1, Love and Hip Hop, Flavor of Love, things that were really, really for an African American audience, very comical and and fun to laugh at, but not a representation of how the bulk of that audience lived their lives. And now, I mean, if you look at just the diversity among the way African-Americans 
are portrayed on television. You have the Ratchet shows, but you also have Empire. You've got Fox coming out with um, a couple of really amazing African-American leads. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on at Fox that is really boding well for showing a great diversity of, of types of African-Americans. Then you've got BAT and you've got TV One and, you know, a lot of other representations. So I think the same thing is starting to perhaps happen with Hispanic-American television, at least, at least in how they're portrayed. And that's really what we're seeing is that there's no ambassadors for a stereotype anymore, right? It's, there's no one way to be Latina. In fact, there's a big uh, debate right now going on in the ad industry. Like beauty ads tend to depict light-skinned Latinas over dark. Oh, well, listen, that's been know, a problem uh, that uh, I've witnessed. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm, 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 I would say I'm dark-skinned, but... Oh, you don't see dark-skinned people reflected in Spanish-language novellas. Or, or Black-tinos. I believe, I believe I heard a statistic, a third of the Hispanic population has African, African descent. No, yeah, and it's always swept under the rug every time it's brought up. So, you know, these things are the opportunities over the next five to ten years. What, you know, what is the story of a Black-tino? that is not just sort of supposed to represent a singular experience, but is an individual's point of view, right? What is the point of view of, a, you know, an Asian Latino? What is the point of view of a, a gay Latino? What is, you know, there's many, many, many different shades that can be portrayed within this very, very large and diverse group. Uh, we like to say the, the internet in terms of content is like a fire hose. And if you think of every molecule of water as being a different point of view, that's the opportunity five to 10 years from now is to, to show all the diversity within the space. And yet what, you know, really unifies the audience sense of heritage or values or history or whatever, but also invites other people into the party. And that's, that's one thing that we um, really are looking at these days is, looking at the fourth wave of diversity, which we call and is called omniculturalism, where now today, especially in entertainment, multiculturalism is table stakes. You can't cast a show without having, you know, you can't catch the batch, cast The Bachelor without having a, an Asian woman, a Latino woman, a black woman, etc. The problem is they still all look like Barbie, right? <laughs> right, and not so, like real people. No, they're not. And they're all like, they all wear in the same, they could all interchange their dresses and, you know, all that. And I think we'll be really revolutionary when somebody actually understands that that's, that's just one kind of dating show. But then, you know, there are actually many other types of women who are eligible bachelorettes or, you know, eligible candidates for relationships um, that aren't cast through a Hollywood eye. And so the omnicultural view looks at every person as an individual and it's just an ecosystem. And, you know, and every different person is, is, defined by an intersection of different qualities. So there's, you know, you take, of course, there's racial diversity, but then there's sexual identity, there's gender, there's politics, there's faith, so fragmented. there's, you know, it's so fragmented. It's the, the, the academic term is intersectionality is that we are all identified by our intersections and each intersection can be, you know, a subculture, right? So there's an opportunity to move away there's cultural pressure to move away from just saying like I'm an Asian woman to I'm a straight Asian mother, you know, divorced with a, you know, living in the entertainment business. I mean, there's so many different places that I intersect and I don't have to be defined by any one of those. It's the sum total. And so that is a is a POV this omnicultural view is this intersectionality creates individuals that are each very very one of a kind. 
and trying to figure out the common sensibilities and psychographics that you can pull to or market to. But essentially, they're, they essentially also come down to what we all share as human values. That's it. She is Linda Ong, the CEO and founder of TruthCo. Thank you for joining the podcast, Linda. Thank you for having me. That's it for this eighth episode of Highly Relevant. I want to thank David Zayas, Kent Jones, and Linda Ong for coming on the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any suggestions on how I can improve the show, please email me at highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. That's highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. Also, if you like the podcast, share it and tell your friends to please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. It makes a major difference in reaching a wider audience. We're also now on Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher for you Android users. See you again next Friday on another episode of Highly Relevant. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.